Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Andy Neal, and you're listening to The Hiker Podcast. Greetings, everyone. This is Andy, and you are listening to the podcast that gets to know the hiker behind the trekking poles. The podcast that takes me, Andy, a new hiker, and asks hikers, how has hiking changed you and how are you changing the world around you? The the, the podcast that asks the why questions of hiking in the outdoors. That's right. You're listening to the Hiker Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. We are in episode two of season three. I cannot believe it. Uh, You all are amazing and have been so supportive sharing about the show on Instagram and on your Facebook pages. And thank you so much for being so cool. I'm excited um, for what season three will bring for this show as as I'm moving towards uh, making this show kind of like my main thing I do. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you all so much. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you want to know how to support this show yourself, uh, go to hikerpodcast.com, click on the Patreon link, and I will talk more about that at the end of the show, but you can do that. Also, thank you to our sponsors, Kanak Outdoors, um, the best, the best, the last pair of trekking poles I have had or will ever have. Um, yeah, amazing stuff. The makers, of course, of the Visca and the Vecto uh, water supply storage solutions, but also those trekking poles, the carbon fiber core trekking poles. Amazing. I'll talk more about them at the end of the show, as well as our other sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, the best instant coffee on the trail. I've tried them all. They are the best. If you want to find out how to win a year supply of CS Instant Coffee, listen to the end of the show, and I will tell you. I'm super excited about this week, though, because we have Bennett Ron on the show. Bennett's a climber, mountaineer. She's through-hiked activist, and we talk about everything from her first through-hike to being plus-sized in the outdoors to land acknowledgments. We talk for an hour. It's an amazing conversation. I was super excited to have her on the show, and I want to have her on the show again because I think we could talk about so much more, um, but this if you're not following Bennett on Instagram, you need to do it right now. Stop what you're doing. Pick up your phone. Follow her on Instagram, and with that, guys, I'm just going to get right into it. Here is my conversation with Bennett Ron. I've had the opportunity over the last year of doing this podcast to meet so many people, not just in the hiking community, but hikers who are into other outdoor sports, such as climbing and kayaking and rafting. And we've had so many of them on the show, but also getting to meet um, people who I just I relate to on other levels. And I and I, then I learned so much more about them because they're different than me, which has been just so cool. And when I first saw our next guest, Bennett Ron, on Instagram and I saw what she was posting. I felt like there was just some kindred spirit there. Cause she just was very much just in your face and badass about things. But at the same time, just, you know, was, was, was giving these just amazing posts and just doing things other people weren't doing in the outdoor industry and was unapologetic about it. So we have Bennett Ron here on the show. How are you doing today, Bennett? Hi, Indy. I am doing so well. Thanks for having so, me. Thank you for coming on. We've had the chance to talk a little bit online and and uh, just 
discuss being plus size individuals in the in the outdoor spaces and um i've really just been encouraged by what you posted online and all, all the different things you've written and I, I just tell people who you are where you come from and what you do yeah uh yeah so i mean i think that my internet persona these days is largely a plus size outdoors person uh and i would say that that is a an excellent description of one of my many myriad identities um in addition to being a plus size outdoors person specifically i think a plus size climber but i do a lot of different stuff um i work as a software engineer before i did that i was a middle school teacher so i love working with kids i love kind of getting silly and like doing ridiculous shenanigans that's kind of my jam um I, yeah, I'm a queer person and I would consider myself a social justice advocate. And um, I don't use the word activist anymore because I don't spend enough time doing like the work, quote unquote, um, as I used to, but I still spend a lot of time trying to be plugged into the community, trying to show up to protests when I can and um, using my Instagram platform, whatever that is, to try and educate about things that I care about. So. So what got you into the outdoors? What was, how'd that story start? You started, you just started going for hikes or you started going around. How, how did that whole thing where you got into the outdoors, was it a lifelong passion or did, was there an impetus or a, a catalyst that began that for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, I would say that it's both. Um, my mother is a very um, hiking. She's very interested in hiking and has been, my whole life very interested in hiking my dad also has done a fair amount of uh hiking and did the whole like backpacking in europe thing when he was a youth um and so we would go on trips to national parks like most summers for like a week or something like that and we would do small hiking trips a couple of times we went camping but i never really uh felt like i owned that identity and then when i moved away to college um i didn't have a car i didn't know how to drive and so i couldn't really do a lot more hiking and so i was kind of relying on other people inviting me and i went on a couple of different trips um my first real backpacking trip was with a bunch of college friends in that era and it went like pretty poorly <laughs> it was it was a beautiful trip and i met a lot of really cool people and had like a pretty good time uh, objectively, but then there was just a lot that made me feel really othered and really distant. And so, um, in a lot of ways, even though I did grow up with some access to the outdoors, certainly more than a, a lot of people in the world, I also did not grow up with the kind of like skills or gear or access or even encouragement to get out and do like more than just occasional hiking days. Um, in national parks. Like I didn't really understand how accessible the outdoors was because it had never been explained to me and never been educated to me. And it, and so then in that way, my watershed moment, kind of my, when I feel like I became an outdoors person was when I somewhat spontaneously decided to hike the um, Camino de Santiago in 2015 uh, as a way of finding myself. <laughs> I'm a full on Cheryl Strait moment. <laughs> it's like, I need to know, I need to figure out who I am and what I want to be. And so I'm going to go do a through hike. Um, and, and that experience of, uh, I mean, anybody who's done any through hiking knows that through hiking will kind of, uh, break you down so that you can build yourself back up again. And 
that is what happened to me. And I came home from that experience feeling like, oh, I was waiting for the outdoors to happen to me. I was waiting for people to organize things and invite me and for it to to become clearer to me and for the education to happen to me. Um, but the Camino really showed me that like, one, I was a lot more capable than I wanted to give myself credit for. And two, like, if I wanted to learn things and I wanted to do things, I had to do it myself. I had to get out there and figure out how to do stuff that I wanted to do. Nobody was going to just like hit me with the hiking stick and make me a good hiker. So um, that was kind of, I would, it wasn't the first time I've ever been hiking in my life, but it was very much my watershed moment and like how I became an outdoors person and started to identify as somebody who belonged in the outdoors. And a quick, like maybe a side on that. I, I'm curious. I've had a few guests hike, um, Camino as their first through hike and they've all described that kind of just emotion doing that hike more so than than people who complete the PCT or or the AT Mm -hmm. Um, what is it about that hike I mean I know there's there's some religious overtones and there's you know it's it's considered somewhat of a pilgrimage what is it about that hike that hikers even if they're they have no religious attachment to it get so just you know changed by yeah, that's a really interesting question. I obviously can't speak for anybody other than myself. Um, but I think I have some hypotheses. One would be that it is an experience that you can do that is a lot more accessible, I think, than any of the American through hikes. So the PCT, of course, and even the CDT are notoriously difficult and long and have very long stretches where you have to be super self-sufficient. The AT has a little bit less of that, but it's still a lot of hiking and a lot of organization and, and that kind of thing. With the Camino, like every five kilometers, which is three miles, so it's not very long, you have like another town where you can buy food or espresso or fried potatoes or red wine, <laughs> like uh, little like hostels that you stay in. And it's definitely more expensive than something like the PCT where you are just using all of your dehydrated meals and stuff like that. But not that much more expensive because the hostels are run by the church. And so they're subsidized by the government, I believe, or it's the church. I'm not really sure. Um, so so it isn't that expensive. I was doing it on about 15 euro a day. Um, and, and I think because of that accessibility, the way that you can break it into very small chunks and you don't have to carry your tent or your sleeping bag or, well, you do have to carry your sleeping bag if you do it in the winter, but I did it in the summer. And so I just had a sheet and then like the food being pretty accessible, the sleeping being pretty accessible, the ability to cut it into chunks. And then a lot of hostels will run programs where they actually take your bag from hostel to hostel for you. So like a lot of older folks or folks with disabilities will send their pack along in front of them so that like they don't even have to carry anything more than a day pack. So there's just a lot more infrastructure on that hike to make it a lot more accessible. And I think that a lot of people seek out through hiking as an escape and in a good way and a bad way, I think for some people, but like through hiking is something where you get to put life on hold for a long time and just spend a lot of time with your body. And I think that the Camino in particular is a place where more people have access to that ability to 
tap into exclusively your body and your body's movement and your body's needs over the period of about a month, which is a lot longer than a lot of us ever get to give to our bodies. Um, and then in terms of the spiritual aspect, like it is definitely a deeper part of the Camino than it is the PCT um, because of its religious background. Um, for I don't know if people know this, but the Camino de Santiago uh, is the myth is that, or I guess myth might be the wrong word. The story of the Camino is that um, the James, St. James, one of the disciples of Jesus, uh, took the something, maybe Jesus's bones, I'm not sure, from Israel, um, and did his proselytizing across the Iberian Peninsula where Spain is now. And then um, when he died, he was buried in a hill <laughs> near the western coast of Spain. And then in the Middle Ages, I think, or something like that, like his bones were discovered as a miracle. And then a church was built on the site of that um, where his body was found. And then it became this idea that like you pilgrimage to the site of St. James's bones in Santiago, Santiago being the Spanish version of St. James, that um, you then pilgrimage to that site to seek forgiveness from God or seek uh, intervention on some medical issue or whatever. And that's been going on since the Middle Ages. And so I think that there's like a little bit more of that spiritual practice, even for agnostics like me, who are not going for specifically a religious experience, often you might be choosing it because you want a specific spiritual experience. Um, because there is this giant, long term, hundred years history of um, all the people before you who are, are seeking something in this experience. And whether that's God or in my mind, it was more like my own psychology, trying to figure out who I really wanted to be and what I really wanted to do. Um, but just like, there is this idea that you're connected to the history of the millions of people who have done this before you and walked this same path. So you said you, you went there for kind of your, your Cheryl Strayed, you know, wild kind <laughs> of discover yourself. Yes. What, what did you, what did you walk away from that trail discovering about yourself or was there anything at all? Yeah, I mean, quite a lot. And and a lot of it didn't really synthesize until sometimes even years after the fact. Um, but I think primarily what I got out of that experience was uh, an understanding of how capable I was. So I, I, <laughs> I decided to do the Camino because I saw the movie, the way with Martin Sheen, <laughs> which I'm just such a cliche. I'm a walking cliche. I'm like a Cheryl Strait and Martin Sheen moment. Um, but <laughs> I watched that movie and was like, Oh wow. Like he went on that hike and found himself. I want to go on that hike and find myself. And I did some research about it. And I was like, well, because it's so accessible, like all the things I said before, like if I can't do it, I can just bail. Like at any point along the, the, the trip, like I'm a bus ride away from an airport and I can just come home and it like, it would be fine. I can just bail. And so I kind of actually went into the experience, not expecting to succeed. And I have written about this a little bit on Instagram. Like at the time, like a, I was having a really 
really terrible time with my mental health. Like I have what they call type two bipolar disorder, which is means that like, it's a little less severe than type one. Um, and I tend towards depressive episodes more than manic episodes. Um, but I had some really bad depression in college and like I was coming out of, I was like about a year and a half out of college at this point. And I like still didn't really know what I was doing and had had like a pretty bad hospitalization experience with my mental health and was trying to figure out like who I was and, and really wasn't sure if I was going to make it, you know, like I just didn't feel like there was much for me in this universe. And like, no, nothing was like tying me to the earth and to the ground. And so I was like, fudging along day to day and like making it through the fog, but I didn't feel like I had a purpose and I didn't feel like I belonged here. And a lot of that, you know, is just my brain chemistry, but also a lot of that was the world telling me that I was not good enough and that I was ugly and that I was unworthy because of the size and shape and appearance of my body. And like, I just didn't know what to do with any of that. And so as I was like going through the healing process, I decided I needed to have my Cheryl Strayed moment. And I, I get on the Camino and literally the first day I surprised myself because the first day I don't have any of the statistics in front of me, but it was a pretty hard hike for me at the time for where I was physically. It was like maybe 10, 15 miles and we gained quite a lot of elevation gain. The first day when you start on the French border between France and Spain in, in a town called Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, you um, kind of essentially go over a pass in the Pyrenees Mountains. And there's it's kind of one of the longest stretches on the Camino where you don't actually have civilization. You end up going into the mountains and then coming down in this totally gorgeous um, mon monastery, I guess, but a convent, I think is what it was, um, in Roncesvalles. And that I just was not sure I was going to be able to finish it. But we got up to the mountain pass and I was like, wow, I actually feel pretty good. Like, and I, I got there faster than I was expecting. And I was like making friends with all the people on the trail. And then we like, you know, I continued and I, I made friends and some people, a lot of Europeans will do the trail in sections like a week at a time. So they'll take a week off work and do a section and then fly home. And so the first section I hiked with a bunch of folks from Ireland and they had to fly home. And I was kind of on my own at that point because I had mostly been spending time with them. And I just decided like, I'm feeling pretty good. Like I'm going to go for this. And I started doing like 20, 25 miles a day, which was so much more than I had ever expected my body to be able to do. Like I think I'd probably maybe hiked 10 miles at a time before I started the Camino and like it hurt and I felt like a disaster zone afterwards. And then all of a sudden I was doing 25 miles in a day, no problem. Well, my feet hurt, but whatever. And all the people around me had all of these blisters and they couldn't handle the heat. That was another thing. I went in, um, about now, I, I think like, uh, end of July, early August. And it was really hot in that part of Spain at that time of year, like getting into the hundred degree plus, um, at three o'clock in the afternoon kind of time. And I could just walk all day and my body did okay with it. Like I started to feel really strong. I started to feel really confident and my body didn't change that much. I did end up losing some weight. Not that that's important, but, um, it was more just like my perception of myself changed. So 
like over the course of this of trek, I was starting to feel just like one more connected with my body. Like it just really started to feel like my mind was like settling into my body in this way that it hadn't for the last like five to 10 years almost. And also I started to realize how capable I was. Like my whole life I'd been told that I wasn't athletic and that I wasn't, um, strong or fast or capable, um, physically. And, and that was just wrong. It was flat out wrong. I was so, so much more capable than I had ever given myself credit. And I, and it just took this scenario that was so far out of my comfort zone and so far away from what I thought I could accomplish to, to show me what I was capable of. And so in a lot of ways, the Camino, what it taught me and what lessons I gained from it was that I, I do belong here and I do belong in outdoor spaces and I do have a lot more purpose beyond just my like intellect and my brain. Like I have a physical reason to be on this world and on this earth and like be engaged in community and also just activity. And and that is what the Camino gave me. And it wasn't really what I was expecting. And also like it was totally what I needed. So you get off the Camino, come back to the States. What was the process of going from a through hike to becoming, I mean, you, you don't identify yourself. I mean, you, you're a hiker, you hike, but you identify yourself more as a climber Yeah. now. What is that? What, what led to that and where you are now? Yeah, for sure. So one key piece of this story after the Camino is I came home and decided I really wanted to pursue teaching. Um, I had been working in a daycare before that, but I decided like, I think I really want to be an honest to God teacher. So I got, (laughs) cause I can't ever do anything the normal way. I didn't, I didn't apply to grad school. I just had made some contacts with some people that worked at a private middle school called Billings. And this school is, is very cool program. If you're in the Seattle area and you have middle school age children, highly recommend it. Um, they run a program that has a lot of outdoor components. And so they run most of the grade, each grade gets two to three trips a year. Um, Then they do like camping or whitewater rafting or rock climbing or um, backpacking. My favorite trip that we ran was the seventh grade coast backpacking trip where we would spend five days on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington state and like backpack 20 to you know, 15 to 20 miles with the kids. And that has always been like, that was where I kind of gained my chops as an outdoor person. So I like gained my confidence that I belonged in the outdoors in on the Camino. And then I started working for this middle school that taught me a lot about the skills required to be in the outdoors. And also continue to gain that confidence of like, Oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Oh yeah. I'm totally capable of hauling a 65 pound leaders pack on a five day backpacking trip and dealing with injuries when they come up or more likely emotional meltdowns. (laughs) Um, and that is where I learned about climbing because a lot of my coworkers were into it. My coworkers, by the way, were thin, straight size, like white folks who, most of them had like a lot of access to uh, the outdoors and the sort of outdoor industry as they grew up and like their families, um, you know, all of them grew up skiing and that kind of thing, not all of them, but a, a fair amount of them. And so I had all of these friends and coworkers who one 
were awesome and wanted me to join in on all their adventures all the time. And two, were exactly the sort of people who I'd always felt pretty different from and separate from in the outdoor world. So like the sorts of people who were good at sports and I never was, or the sports of people, the sorts of people who could afford to go skiing and I couldn't do that. Um, and so when they started going to the climbing gym, I was like, I'm in, I want to go to climbing gym and I want to see what that's like. And the first day we went to the Seattle bouldering project in, uh, downtown Seattle, I think I climbed maybe five routes total. And these are bouldering problems. So they're very short. They're like maybe 10 moves. And I couldn't feel my arms the next day. I like tried to turn on the shower at home and like my forearms were so sore. I like couldn't grip the shower like knob, (laughs) but I was in love. Like I bought a membership that day. And then the following weekend, I went to an REI garage sale and bought shoes. I was like, and I didn't have any money to spend on these things, by the way. I was just obsessed. I was like, this is awesome. This is such a visceral way of connecting with my body. I like feel every muscle contracting. I feel so powerful and strong, even though I was probably the weakest person in the entire gym. And also, by the way, the only fat person in the entire gym, but that's a whole different story. Um, <laughs> like I was just so, I felt so physically engaged and so physically inspired by climbing and I fell in love and it kind of took over everything. (laughs) All I wanted to do was learn how to outdoor climb and learn how to rope climb and sport climb. And, and, and the more I started doing that kind of falling in love with climbing and using my newfound power as somebody who can just be my own mentor and be my own role model and say, well, I want to get involved with this. I don't see anybody who looks like me doing this, but that's okay. I can be the first one. I'll be a trailblazer. I'm more capable than I give myself credit for. Like I just kind of ran into it headlong and was like, I guess I'm doing this. (laughs) Um, And it worked in a lot of ways, but I think that I really didn't start to feel super confident about it. Like I, I am not a strong climber. I'm telling you this right now, even now, five years later, I am not a strong climber. I, in the climber world, there are like people you can tell how strong somebody is by the kinds of grades that they climb. I am very much a beginner to maybe beginner intermediate level in terms of the abilities that I have and the strength that I have to climb routes. But what I make up for it, where I make up for that is by being like psyched on systems and safety and um, mentorship and teaching folks and like so much of climbing to me is not about difficulty. It's about like trying awesome, cool stuff that makes you inspired (laughs) and excited. And so um, I started kind of being that for myself. And then I discovered that there were other people that looked like me on the internet that were also doing that, which like, probably should have been I should have known that there was that I wasn't literally the first fat climber in the world but because literally no one at the gym ever looked like me any of the gyms by the way there are like three gyms in Seattle and I never saw another plus size person at them five years ago when I discovered Sam Ortiz (laughs) on uh, the Pacific Northwest Outdoor Women Facebook group I was like oh my God, there are more people that do this, that look like me, that climb. And that is kind of when I consider myself like that is, that is the 
climbing watershed moment of when I realized that like there was a community of people who were interested in figuring out more about this and that like we could organize and we could bring more people into the fold and we could show people not just me, not just become a a mentor for myself, but become a mentor for the community and like do this, unlock those doors for other people um, that look like me and also like me had believed that climbing and, and also hiking obviously, but climbing specifically was something that fat people couldn't do. And of course we're drawing inspiration from folks like, you know, the disabled hikers, Instagram and Jenny Brusso and unlikely hikers, like these kinds of communities have so much power because they take um, a world, the outdoor industry that only shows a very certain kind of person recreating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and totally throws that out the window. And it's funny how that affects you as an outdoors person, as a fat outdoors person myself, I got into the outdoors. I fell in love with hiking kind of like you with climbing. I just was like, I'm buying up everything. I'm, I'm you know, all the YouTube videos I'm watching and, you know, and I start doing this thing called, you know, listeners know being a trail angel. Cause I live right next to Pacific crest trail. Mm-hmm. And now I'm hearing about this, this, I'm telling people my story. It's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty heavy. I got into hiking and at that point I'm like, I'm going to lose all this weight. I'm going to lose all this weight until I realize it's not <laughs> yep. important. And I did, I have, I'm, I'm much stronger than I was and I, I'm not as heavy as I used to be, but being a skinny fit eight pack hiker, is just not in the cards for me. I realized that a while ago but i kept hearing about this this hiker called second chance and yeah at this point i hadn't seen the youtube videos i'm like there's this guy out there and like yeah yeah you like him and he's out there doing it and okay so look on the internet and i find this whole community of you know jenny brusso and then i end up finding ash manning and all these others and that you know recently had you know um drew holsey on the show you know who's uh, you know a, a fat climber as well and it's like, wow, there's other people doing this and I am not alone, even though, mm-hmm. you know, my, my section of the PC when I'm hiking, I get, you know, side looks all the time because what are you doing out here? What do you mean? You just hike 13 miles, right? <laughs> right. You, mm-hmm. you mean point 13, right? Yep. <laughs> no. And uh, I, I'm curious though, you, you, you have that community, you see how, how it's gotta be in the climbing world even more difficult because i know for me the thought of you know i did some scrambling practice i'm getting ready to, to, to get up mount mclaughlin here in southern mm-hmm. oregon i'm just like oh my gosh how I, I couldn't go up a vertical wall what am i i couldn't do that how is that as, as a fat hiker um the perceptions the side eyes you you get from other people how does that affect you compared to maybe other outdoor sports because that's just I'm scared to death of climbing. Like it scares me. I'm, I, I just see my, my fat body sprawled out on the gym floor, just you know. And they're like, "Well, you shouldn't have done it." You know, that's that's a fear I have. What would you tell other other fat people out there who are like, "You know, I want to try this, but this is just like, I, 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 I'm scared." Fair enough. It's scary. I, in a lot of ways, it feels a little bit counterintuitive to our internal coding, which tells us like don't go near the edge and don't do things where you're like potentially going to fall a lot. Like it's sort of like, don't poke the tarantula, you know, like it's like a pretty basic human instinct. Um, I, Sam Ortiz, my, my muse, uh, always says like, if you can climb a ladder, you can climb a wall. And I, and I am going to steal that phrase from her and say like, you are totally right that it feels terrifying and it feels like it shouldn't be possible. And 
it will probably feel like it is impossible when you first try it. But that's the beauty of it. Like that, I mean, so I call, I have this thing I call hashtag rage confidence. (laughs) And people, like when I feel like I am being denied access to something, either because like nobody there looks like me or because like you said about people actively on the trail being like, oh, you mean 0.13 miles? Like, oh, congratulations. I just get this major FU energy. And like, that's always just been kind of my MO. And and so it turns, it gets turned around and fueled into rage confidence, which just means like, you think I can't do this? I can effing do this. Okay. <laughs> Watch me like hold my beer. <laughs> um, and, and so I encourage folks, if you are feeling interested in it or like, inquisitive about climbing do go to the gym there are almost in in every gym I've ever been in there will be like beginner type walls where they teach climbing to folks that will be what we call slabby which in the climbing world means it's not a fully vertical wall like the walls in your home or your office it's got a little bit of an angle to it so that it's a little bit more like a ramp and that will mean that your body is capable of pulling you up that wall by using almost none of your arms. You can use your legs the whole time. Your legs are doing all the work holding you on the wall. Your legs hold you up most, for most people, for folks that can walk around are ambulatory, your legs are doing that work on like constantly every time you go up a hill. So you're just turning up the degree of the hill and then your arms are holding you on the wall, but your legs are pushing you up. And that is, is all I do. I do not do those, <laughs> like, I mean, maybe people are like watching climbing in the Olympics or whatever, like those steep overhanging walls where they cut their feet and they do the jumps and like, I don't do anything like that. That is not, that's, you know, flashy climbing, but that's not the majority of climbing. And it does not have to be your experience with climbing. Climbing kind of can just look like climbing up a ladder and getting to some incredibly high, beautiful, wonderful awe-inspiring places and also feeling super strong and working through the puzzles of like, how do I move my hips and rotate my knee and use the side of my toe to make this position feel more comfortable and more strong so that I can then push up and reach the next hold or whatever. Like that body awareness that climbing brings you is incredible. And I think especially for, for fat folks who have been told their whole life that like, to dissociate from our bodies. Like you are fat and ugly. Like you are not this person that's in the mirror. You're the thin person inside of you that you have to unlock by cutting calories or whatever. Like that is a dissociative tactic. That is what breaks us apart from our bodies. That is exactly what was causing my depression and dissociative behavior around like not feeling grounded and climbing more than anything I've ever done in my entire life makes you understand viscerally every part of your body at all times when you're on the wall. You're like thinking about your arms and your elbows and your core and your knees and your ankles. And like you're really in your body. And so it can be one, really hard to break out of that dissociative state. And two, really healing for folks who have been told to dissociate their whole lives. And there's this perception in in the outdoor world you have very much it's i mean with climbing when i think of climbing uh, i think of the movie free solo alex mm-hmm. honnold's an amazing climber amazingly made film beautiful film i i watch it just as you know something they have on the background sometimes is because it's gorgeous and but that's what i think of like i gotta be that mm-hmm. and no. so much of the climbing in the outdoor world 
is very much um straight sized um buff um cisgendered um straight orientation white male anglo-saxon protestant essentially (laughs) yep you're not wrong (laughs) and it's so much the, the the outdoor community can be and is so much more than that than what we're seeing in media you know on on in the in the outdoor films and you mentioned earlier when you first when your first backpacking trip you had you had a feeling of otherness mm-hmm. um what does the outdoor community need to do to overcome that cuz when you look at the youtube channels you look at a lot of stuff it's it is very straight size um you know cisgendered white dudes you know say straight sexual preference that that sort of that's it's very much that and even in a lot of the advertisements you know the big chains are changing they're 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 reaching out to you know you know people of color indigenous um you know fat people like us they're reaching out you know for our opinions which is great um what does the outdoor industry need to do to be more inclusive to everyone and uh what are they doing right right now that we need to keep doing Yeah. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, and I could be completely off base with this, but I think that in a lot of ways, the cultural uprisings of last summer and the George Floyd protests finally, finally got the message through to a lot of quote unquote woke industries or industries that have always been like, we have a social justice platform or we care about like the environment. Um, It kind of woke them up to the fact that they were actually not doing enough. Um, and I, I do feel grateful about that. I, I, I could talk for a lot of time about my opinions on the outcomes and, and sort of what we're seeing from, from last summer and how that's playing out. But I think that a lot of companies were, some companies were doing work before that. And I don't want to dissuade, I don't want to like um, minimize that, but a absolutely, lot of companies yeah. jumped in in last June and were like, "Oh crap, we've got to figure this out." So, <laughs> like that is in the last year, I've seen a lot more, as you said, like folks of color, um, queer folks, that kind of thing in advertisements, and that is a very positive step because, as I said before, when you don't see yourself represented in the industry or in the imagery or in the videos or whatever, like you don't think it's possible for yourself. This is the exactly, hashtag exactly. representation matters. And I, and I think that it, they're doing a really good job of trying to fix that. And that is important. However, representation matters, but it is not everything. Um, and you and I have talked about this on Instagram before, but like, one of the really big problems with the plus size community specifically is access to technical gear that fits. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are some companies that do really great work out there that like provide maybe like hiking clothes and that kind of thing for lots of different sizes up to six X maybe. But what happens when you need a technical lightweight raincoat? Like that is something in the Pacific Northwest that is a necessity for anything more than just a day hike. If you want to be a through hiker, you need a technical, lightweight, very durable, very waterproof raincoat. That's a requirement. And there is nothing in a women's above a size 3X in women's that would fit uh, a person that is above that size. And I also know people who are women above a 3X who do really awesome hiking adventures. And so like those people exist and they are not being served. And 
there are a few companies, some of them I'm working with currently and, and other folks that I know are working with them that are trying to remedy that situation. But I think a lot of times, like, it's a really slow process. And it's so frustrating to see, especially brands who are like, oh, we're working on size inclusivity. And that means that it goes up to a 3X. And I am a size 1X, I'm a size 18. And so I come from a very, very privileged position because a lot of these things will cover my butt, but they're not covering the butts of my friends. And that is really frustrating and something that I'm currently working on and something that the industry really could use uh, a leg up on. And, and also like, we're not even close to there. Like there is one yeah. harness company that I know of one that makes a harness that fits a maybe three X person. Like, that is just not okay. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that is not okay. Um, and, and there, there are other harness options that go up a little bit higher, but they're not like lead to certify. Um, they're not, I would call them more like rigging harnesses rather than climbing harnesses. So there's a lot of nuance there, but that is definitely one place that we're failing. And, and then that is tied to access in general. So like are our trailheads and our hiking infrastructure, outdoors infrastructure, are they accessible to folks with mobility issues or folks with like any kind of disability? Like, are we making things accessible to folks with all kinds of bodies and needs. Um, I'm not sure. I definitely can't speak to that experience on my own, but I know there are a lot of people on the internet who have said like, oh, your quote unquote accessible trail like had so many potholes that my chair wouldn't work on it or that kind of thing. So like that kind of work really is something the outdoor industry could work on. And then cost is a huge problem. I think that like I mentioned before, I grew up with plenty and I am very privileged, but I never had the kind of extra income in my family to go skiing, for example, or do any of those other more technical outdoor uh, sports because they required too much gear and too much financial overhead. And that is true of a lot of folks who are like, people of color, um, people from non-traditional backgrounds. If the outdoor industry wants to see more diversity represented in not just like its advertisements, but also the people wearing its clothing and getting out on the trails and doing the sports, they need to figure out ways to make it equitable financially. Um, and that might include like grants or like gear libraries is something that I'm really excited about. Like how do we get a gear library up and running so that people can try things on like how what if you could try skiing for like 20 bucks and see if you liked it before you commit to spending all of the money on all of the gear and the lift pass and blah 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 blah. like that would be really cool and then I think the last thing that I will say is education so I definitely talked about how I was kind of waiting for people to mentor me to become an outdoors person. And I realized that like, that was probably never going to happen. It was never going to fall in my lap. I think that the outdoor world has this idea of mentorship that has been part of the zeitgeist and sort of the mythology of the like John Muir, like kind of white guy oh, wilderness yes. idea, right? That like, you get this old dude who picks up a young dude and teaches him all of his skills. That doesn't really exist anymore. But what does exist is like Facebook groups and meetups and uh, like 
the climbers of color type um, groups that run programs that are like discounted and, and are specific for affinity groups and that kind of thing. So we need to rethink the way we think about education. And that can be as basic as like, what are leave no trace principles? And also side note, how is the idea of leave no trace slightly colonialist and maybe needs to be thought about in a more indigenous mindset? Like there's a, a bunch of different ways that we can talk about education and discourse and then, and then technical mentorship. Like how do you scramble to your point about like, there are definitely skills. Scrambling is not necessarily something that's super intuitive to the human body the first time you do it. So do you have people that are like, teaching you like this is how you like work on your footwork when you're scrambling this is how you keep yourself from pulling off a bunch of choss and like falling to your death <laughs> this I, is I was how- literally i was literally watching youtube videos how to do it while i was doing it like oh, oh good i yeah. have a little bit of service let's get let's figure this out right and youtube that's a that's a great resource but so are like i said like I have made so many friends and learned so much from people I've met on the internet. And I think that is like a super powerful way of meeting people who live in your area, who are doing this kinds of stuff that you want to do and might be down to take a newbie along and (laughs) teach you, show you the ropes or, or whatever. Um, Yeah. So those are, I just, I spotted a lot of different things there, but those are the kinds of things that are on my mind about how to make things more accessible, how to make things better for everyone so that we can all have access to these things that the John Mears of the world have had access to since they colonized the land and removed the indigenous peoples from it. So. And I want, I want to touch on this with you and you, you definitely touched on it quite a bit. Um, there is a whole movement right now within the outdoor community that whatever river you're rafting down or trail you're climbing or, you know, mountain, mountain you're going up. Um, to cite the the indigenous land and something i've begun to do and i've noticed it's almost become like this like trendy thing to do you're woke if you do this what i mean i speak to the importance of recognizing the fact especially for someone like me you know white anglo-saxon protestant straight you know basically you know i literally i literally have ancestors who came over on the mayflower <laughs> like right. they took this land from people who and it did not belong to them mm-hmm. um acknowledging that but also going beyond acknowledging that whose land it is and that we have stolen this land mm-hmm. but what we can we do for those communities that's something i'm, I'm still trying to figure out mm-hmm. you know I, I look at you know where i'm hiking i'm like okay this land you know according to my map here is you know my guy map has the indigenous you know different lands there it's claimed by three or four different tribes how can i give give back to those tribes or is there an organization that can help all the the local indigenous people in north america or kind of distribute those funds what what do we need to do just go beyond you know giving the land acknowledgements Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean i will start with the caveat that like one I have some indigenous ancestry, but I absolutely cannot speak for the indigenous experience. I especially cannot speak for the entire indigenous experience or Native American experience because, like, that is a very large group of people. (laughs) I don't know them all personally, so I can't can't speak to it. But I can tell you what I do. And what I do is I put – I am the, the, like, woke girl putting all of my land acknowledgments at the bottom of my Instagram posts. And I can tell you why I do that. It is not just so that I can look woke, although that's probably part of it, if we're being honest, because we're all about our image. But I do that because for a long time, the United States of America has kind of tried to perpetuate this myth that 
Native Americans are in the past, that they were, that like so much of our language is what um, Jolie from Indigenous Women Hike uses. She calls it erasure erasure language. And I love that word that like these were the lands of, uh, for me, the Duwamish people is where I live in Seattle. And like, yeah, they're currently not maybe exclusively the lands of the Duwamish people, but like there are people who are Duwamish who live here now and still are stewards of the land and like water protectors and land protectors. And like, they still exist, but we are silencing their voices and we're ignoring them kind of systematically on purpose so that we don't have to reckon with this idea that, like you said, we stole their land without permission and we're not giving it back. And so like I use land acknowledgement one as a bit of a sacred thank you like saying hey stewards of this land for 10,000 years before white people got here like thank you for taking care of this land and doing such a good job and like thank you for letting me experience the wonderful things that your ancestors have experienced for a really long time and also as a little bit of a like hey just a reminder like these lands are stolen and these are the people who were the original stewards of them. And these are the people who are still fighting for them now, even if they have been physically displaced from them. So that's part of it. But to your point about like what else we can do, because obviously me putting a tag on Instagram from the nativeland.ca app, like is probably not doing anything to actually help indigenous people. Uh, I think that this comes back to education and like tapping into it. Like, these are real people who still exist today and are still doing all of this work. Like you mentioned, I have all of these, you know, because of the native land app, there's like all these overlapping corners and there's like six different tribes listed. Um, how do I know which one is which and how do I know how to support them? Like, I, I don't know because I don't know anything about the tribal groups that exist in your area. Like native Americans are not a monolith, but they do usually have websites and community centers and like it's usually not too hard to google them and find out like who is the tribal group that had maybe the most claim over your area and the reason you get all those overlaps on the native land map is that like <laughs> most indigenous tribes especially in the united states and and the americas in general didn't have the idea of borders in the way that we now exactly borders. With the western borders that we've drawn over yeah. the world <laughs> right so you might have had a group that spent a lot of time in one place but then was also pretty nomadic and covered a lot of different area and they overlapped with other tribes and so that's why you get those like the native land app is trying to show you generally this tribe was mostly participating in activities in this area ish <laughs> but none of it is super specific and it is not as much of a pinpoint as you'd like and you won't get a feeling for like actually who was where when and like actually what were the relationships and actually what was the culture until you start to dig in and find out more and that is when you will find out what they're asking for like for example where i live in seattle there is the like this tribal land is duwamish land that was stolen. And the Duwamish people, who's, by the way, chiefs, main chief 
the the last chief of the Duwamish tribe before they were kind of kicked off of their land, Chief Self, um, is what Seattle is named for. Like we literally use his name on the daily to describe where we live. And we also never gave them federal acknowledgement. So they don't have a reservation. They don't have Mm. federal um, indigenous rights. And so like one of the things that they've been working on a lot recently is getting federal acknowledgement, which would give them a lot of rights that the tribal groups that are federally recognized would have. Um, and so recently, like there was a petition that they were um, sending around and I knew about that because I followed them on Instagram. <laughs> like I found out who they were. I followed them on Instagram. I then know what they want us to do. They recently, like a year ago, put out some petitions asking to rename some small parks like their traditional names. Great. I can super get behind that. And then on a financial level, I pay rent to the Duwamish people. There is a program called Real Rent that allows you to donate monthly small amounts. I, you know, I don't pay like hundreds of dollars a month, but I do pay some money every month to the Duwamish tribe to like help them, especially because they don't have federal land acknowledgement, but to help them like increase their tribal uh, knowledge programs with their youth and do things like the, um, the ceremonies that they participate in and, and the, the long boats and stuff like that. So that is how we can support Native Americans and indigenous peoples where we live today. And that is a lot more tangible than just an Instagram acknowledgement. But the Instagram acknowledgement, I think, is the first step to being like, whose lands am I on? Who are they? What's their website? What's their Instagram? Can I meet some people in that tribe? Can I get more involved with their needs and, and what they're asking the public to do? And like, Therefore, it is a very powerful and valuable step. Closing out, I'm just curious. I'm going to ask everybody this. How has this journey, the outdoors and hiking and climbing especially, how has the outdoors and the community changed you? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, I'm. I feel like I'm – at one in one part, like exactly the same person that I was 10 years ago. And in another part, like completely not at all the same person that I was 10 years ago. If you look at pictures of me from late high school, I look pretty much exactly the same. I have the same length of hair. I am still fat. I still pretty tan and brown all the time. And like, still have that same, like, don't mess with me expression. (laughs) But in a lot of other ways, I'm completely different. I don't hate myself. I feel empowered. I feel connected. I, in high school, did not have a lot of super powerful, strong relationships with my peers. And now I have more friends than I know what to do with. And they're all really wonderful. And I sometimes stress about how little time I have to give to all of them. Um, And so what has the outdoors done for me? I mean, it's not just the outdoors. It's also a lot of like mental health counseling and getting a job that allows me to not be in poverty anymore and like a bunch of other different things. But what has the outdoors given to me? It has given me confidence in myself. It's given me confidence in my community. It's given me a lot more tools to deal with things when they feel hard or unmanageable. It's given me... um a lot of sense of purpose. I had some sense of purpose before, but I feel so much more dialed into purpose now and impact. Um, yeah. And, and, and I never ever felt like I belonged before I started to kind of what I call like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to say a swear word, unfuck my brain from the diet and culture and from the sort of 
havoc that fat phobia wreaks upon everyone, but I think Mm -hmm. especially young women. And I have had to unlearn all of that. And the outdoors gave me a huge gift by showing me that my body was worth so much more than my appearance and my, like, (laughs) whether or not people found me attractive. I, my body can do incredible things that have absolutely nothing to do with whether or not boys think I'm cute. Um, especially because I don't actually care if boys think I'm cute anymore. (laughs) Why is it so the outdoors so effective in dealing with mental health? You think not that it ever takes the place of, you know, going to therapy or, or medication if you need it. Uh, Those things are important. You know, I just know for myself, Mm -hmm. uh, my therapist literally said, go for a hike. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why do you think that's so effective? I mean, again, I can only speak from my own experience and I can get kind of woo woo about this if, if you want. I, I think that like we are biological organisms and like we evolved in nature. We did not evolve in office buildings. And so like our bodies like desire connective connection and connectivity and community and all of those things that I think that the modern world doesn't necessarily provide unless you seek it out. And, and I think that like fresh air is really important and natural circadian rhythms where you're falling asleep with the sun as it goes down and waking up with the sun as it comes back up. Like those are biological processes that our bodies evolved for literally thousands and thousands of years. And we have kind of circumnavigated them or like we have kind of twisted them to fit a capitalist productive Westernist lifestyle and we miss it. And I think that that sometimes is a big contributor to mental health. It's an exacerbator to a lot of the mental health struggles. And so going outside and going hiking and going backpacking and all of that, like can help reset that in us. And then I think also just like I was talking about with that dissociativeness, like I think so often in Western culture, and especially when you're having mental health problems, like sometimes that is so directly related to feeling out of sync with your body and your mind and like feeling anxious where you're just kind of spinning in your brain or feeling depressed where like, You're just so heavy and tired and hopeless. And when you have to move your body for survival, when you're on a hike and you have to get back down from this mountain because you've gotten up it, like that is so like basic human instinct. And that kind of can bring that connectivity back from your, your mind and your body meeting and like kind of living so thoroughly in the moment that I I do think it can be really helpful for mental health. Obviously it is not a solution. I am not saying go on a hike instead of taking your antidepressants. Exactly. But but I think it can be a helpful um, tool in a suite of mental health tools that like really can help with connection and stabilization. Do you think it also helps with the connection just, to the planet we're on. And mm-hmm. I, I say that because I, w- I was asked about this today. Like, how is it when I was talking about backpacking trip and there was all these issues, and I was able to keep my cool. Whereas, you know, things happen in the real world, you know, with work and other things like I, I get real frazzled. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I, I had said, you know, I think what it is, is, you know, there was this instance where there was a stream, it was supposed to be flowing and we're in a, a drought here in Southern Oregon. It mm-hmm. was dry. And so I needed to go another three miles for water. I'm dying of thirst. Mm-hmm. And I didn't freak out, mm-hmm. but there was this realization and connection that this stream is dry. The earth is hurting and this affects me. Whereas when you're in the city, you're at home, I turn on the faucet water comes out right i don't have to think about it mm-hmm. what is it about that connection with the earth when we're you know grabbing onto a boulder when we're trekking down a trail when we're flowing down a river yeah i i mean i guess i think it i just it feels like it goes back to that idea of like biologically. So for a hundred years, we've been a capitalist society that depends on productivity for our worth and self-value or whatever. And maybe it's more than a hundred years. Maybe that's been brewing for all of civilization, but civilization is not that old in comparison to human evolution. Um, and, and so much of that, uh, gathering water and, uh, finding food for oneself in the wild, like that is, biologically what we were evolved to do and so (laughs) it's um it's something that you are so naturally inclined to be able to deal with those scenarios survival is at the core like what we did we survived that's how we are still here and so putting yourself in sort of manufactured states of survival in a lot of ways um I think it just helps bring you, like I said, it helps bring you back to what you are physically, which is a human body that has evolved over millennia to be this like cool organism that has all of this consciousness and also all of this access to really wonderful, awesome stuff. And it really does help kind of, I don't know, for me, I just feel like I'm on a plane with literally thousands of years of humanity. um, And I can deal with it. Like my ancestors had to deal with hard things. I can deal with hard things um, and I can get through the next three miles. That That's okay. I can do this. Um, but yeah, that's obviously just me coming from my life and my life of pretty limited like trauma and struggle. <laughs> so, Bennett, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like and we're at an hour now, so I have to wrap. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I feel like we talked for another hour or two about all these things. But yeah. uh, people want to read what you've written because you've written a lot about this thing or follow you on social media or just see what you're doing. Where would they go? Yeah. I mean, I think the best point of truth for all things social media and my <laughs> online life is my Instagram. Um, that's just my name. So at Bennett Ron. Um, and there, like, I have a link tree in my bio there with a lot of links of like the, to the blog posts I've written about a lot of this stuff and, um, places I've been featured and stuff like that. Also, um, on Facebook, if anybody is interested in the climb big community, so climb big org is a, a website that Sam Ortiz and Megan Baker and I put together. So if you're interested in getting involved in climbing, and especially if you're a plus size person that's feeling a little bit like nervous about it, um, there's a Climb Big Facebook community as well as an Instagram. Uh, and like I said, the website, but the Facebook community is a really great place to connect with us and like, you know, try and maybe find people in your area or like get advice or that kind of thing. Um, so that's another avenue to reach me. 
Awesome. Bennett, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this stuff and hope to have you on again because I feel like we could talk for a few more hours about all this. <laughs> yeah, we covered a lot. It was great. We did. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Thank you all so much for listening to the end of the episode all the way through. It was an amazing conversation and I was so grateful to have Bennett on the show. Hope to have her on again. Thank you, Bennett, for taking the time to talk to me and talk to our listeners about everything that we've talked. Gosh, it was just, we went over a lot of stuff. So thank you so much, Bennett. Uh, Make sure y'all follow her on the Instagrams and uh, check out everything she writes. Does some amazing writing. And uh, yeah, just, um, it was really just a really encouraging, great conversation. Um, Do you want to thank all the Patreon supporters of this show, including, but not limited, to Matthew, Jennifer, Elizabeth, Maggie, Ava, Annette, Renee, Alastair, Stephanie, Mike, Danielle, Cade, Daniel, Danielle, Ren, Jacob, Tommy, and Deb. If you'd like to support this show on Patreon, go to hikerpodcast.com, click on the link, and uh, it'll have all the different ways you can listen and uh, listen. <laughs> all the different ways you can support the hiker podcast um on patreon also gotta thank our sponsors Kanaka outdoors the best last pair of trekking poles you'll ever buy the carbon fiber cork trekking poles the carbon fiber is sourced from the same place that they they source the carbon fiber for the the legs of the mars helicopter hover thing that's on mars right now um i have used so many different kinds of trekking poles um this is my like fifth pair and i've tried to break these i've broken other ones without trying um, they hold up. They are amazing. Um, Mika and Gilad uh, created a company that want, they want it to be sustainable. Um, those trekking poles are handmade in Portland, Oregon, the state I'm currently residing in. Um, amazing company. And if you'd like 10% off your trekking poles or just a single trekking pole, as long as they're brand new, uh, you can use the promo code HIKERPODCAST for 10% off of your order. Make sure you get yourself some carbon fiber cork trekking poles. Um, also, you have the Vecto and the Visco water storage solutions, which we all see on trail, uh, of course. So, also have to thank CS Instant Coffee, the best instant coffee on the trail. I know because I've tried them all, they are amazing um, with their sustainable packaging and just as a company, just sustainability for both these companies can knock out doors and see since the coffee is a, is a huge value for them and uh, making sure they're not leaving more of an impact that needs to be left on this earth. Super grateful to see us coffee. They are sponsoring a contest right now where you can win a free year. That's one bundle a month of CS instant coffee. All you got to do is go ahead and buy some CS instant coffee. When you check out, use the promo code, you guessed it, Hiker Podcast at your checkout. And uh, from there, you'll be entered into a contest. We'll have a winner at the end of August and a winner at the end of September. And you can win a year of coffee. I mean, it, I, I, yeah, I, um, I'm a coffee snob. Many of you know I worked at Starbucks for many years. I learned about all the coffee tasting and regions and this sort of thing. And uh, it's legit coffee. I will, I will, lately especially, CSS of coffee has been my morning cup of gel. It's that good. It's I'm seriously picky about my coffee. Um, I prefer um, 
coffee from regions in Africa and Indonesia. I prefer a, a bold blend. I prefer aged. You know, I'll, I'm very picky about my coffee. And CS has a coffee delivers on the trail. They deliver in the morning and uh, they, you can have it. You can have it for a year for free if you buy some now. Um, all the links for that are in the description of this episode, as well as links to follow Bennett. And uh, I just want to thank you all for being so cool to the show. We are in season three. I cannot believe it. I'm so excited about the future guests on this show. We have so many episodes already recorded and uh, it's going to be a really cool season. Got some more stuff in the works. I'm excited because this is becoming like my main thing I do. And um, it's becoming sustainable as far as being able to pay for itself and pay for my time to use it because you all have been so supportive. You all have shared the show on your social medias. And it's been just really, really cool and encouraging how myself, just a plus size, big hiker, new to this is just talking with other people about it and it's been resonating and i'm just super grateful to all of you so thank you all so much for being so love and kind loving and kind to me if you'd like to follow me on social media just go to at uh, andy films and hikes on the instagram and uh, also go to hikerpodcast.com for all the other different social links our facebook group and all that fun jazz and stuff Closing out, though, um, I'm currently sitting here in Southern Oregon. I'm looking outside. I'm in the Pacific Northwest, of course. And uh, just looking outside, you're thinking, oh, it's it's a gloomy, foggy PNW morning. No, it's a hot, smoky Pacific Northwest summer day. Um, fires in this region have devastated the landscape. They are devastating our air as a result of our drought and of climate change. And I would just encourage you all, and whatever you do, making sure that you are being fire safe and that you are doing your part to reduce your carbon footprint, that you are doing your part to make sure you let your elected officials know, hey, you know, climate change is real. Look out west. See what's happening. It's, it's We need to do something about this. We need solutions to this um, that are sustainable and that are eco-friendly. Um, because people are losing their their livelihoods, people are losing their homes, people are losing their lives, and um, as hikers, we see that because we we, we hike through areas, and uh, we we hike through burn areas. We see the the the, the scars left on the landscape, and uh, we need to find solutions um, not only for the fire problem and the air quality problem, but the climate change. So, I would encourage you to uh, just be fire safe as we get further into the summer, as it's crazy um, in the West, especially. I know a lot of people um, have had to uh, ditch out on the Pacific Crest Trail, on the Tahoe Rim Trail because of smoke. It's been so bad. I know even on the CDT in the Rockies, smoke has come down from Canada and has affected hikers there. Uh, right now, my throat is burning. My ears hurt. My nose is, is dry because of the smoke. And so um, I just would encourage you all to please be fire safe. Be careful out there and uh, do your part to help make a positive impact on our environment, on the climate on the public lands you are hiking on with that said guys thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the hiker podcast and if this is being lost and may i never be found I'm